Autism Through Cinema. Before we get to today's episode, we've got something exciting happening in the autumn that we think you should know about. From the 16th to the 28th of September, we'll be screening a selection of films for the Barbican's autism and cinema season, from biopics to documentary, a classic David Lynch movie, and a curation of short films created by autistic filmmakers. This is a season set to challenge, inspire, and change a few minds for the better. Tickets are on sale now via the Barbican Cinema in London, and we very much hope to see you there. In today's episode, Janet, Georgia, John James, Alex and David consider the 1992 British period drama Orlando, directed by Sally Potter, starring Tilda Swinton, based on the novel by Virginia Woolf. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoy the discussion. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Autism Through Cinema podcast. Today, we are discussing the uh, 1992 film Orlando. Um, and uh, I'm joined, so my name is David Hartley, and I'm joined again by uh, Alex Whittleson, Georgia Bradburn, Janet Harwood, and John James Laidlow. Yes, as mentioned, we are looking today at the film Orlando, and uh, I'm going to hand over to Georgia, who has uh, suggested this film, and she's going to give us a bit of an introduction. So take it away, Georgia. Thank you. <laughs> um, yeah, so we, uh, I was on a call a few weeks ago, um, just with some, with John James and some other um, uh, autistic people, and um, Orlando came up in conversation, and I'd never really associated it with autism before but the response was like immediate kind of love and admiration from everyone everyone had a very strong personal connection with the film um which took me by surprise but I also found quite interesting because I'd never really considered it as a film that resonates with autistic people but um it's quite a special film for me and it came around a very uh pivotal point in my life when I first watched it and it's always just kind of stuck with me. Um, But I'll quickly summarise the film. Um, It's from 1992, Um, I think. Correct me if I'm wrong, but uh, I think it's from 1992 and it's directed by Sally Potter, prominent British feminist filmmaker. And it stars uh, Tilda Swinton as the lead character in one of her first bigger roles after being in uh, a lot of Derek Jarman uh, films and it's it's an adaptation of the Virginia Woolf novel of the same name and it's about a uh, time traveling or not time traveling but immortal gender changing protagonist who experiences every uh, each period of history yet still maintains their identity it's uh it's, it's a very resonant film for, for women and it's also uh, resonant for queer people as well. I I think the the themes that resonate with autistic people, for me, I, th- I think it's to do with, there's a theme in the film about artifice and about the artifice of society specifically. And 
um, when I was I, when I was studying the film a couple of weeks ago because I was writing a big essay on it, I reread Susan Sontag's notes on camp, and uh, she mentions that camp is really about artifice and exaggeration, and that very much is how Orlando presents society going from um, the the fifteen hundreds right up until the present moment when the film was made, which is the nineties. Um, so there's a lot of very garish, over-the-top costumes, makeup, rituals that seem very ridiculous. And yet throughout this, uh, Orlando maintains quite an intimate relationship with the camera through and the audience through direct address. Throughout the film, they make direct eye contact with the audience member, like a friend. And so you have someone to communicate with throughout the film. So throughout all this pageantry and ridiculousness that and camp that they show throughout the film, um, there's always an underlying uh, commentary on the things that are going on around them, and that's something that I really that I really like and I really relate to as an autistic person. I feel like I need a friend around to constantly comment on the ridiculous artifice of society around me. Because there are so many things that don't really make sense, but just kind of exist. Yeah, I don't. I don't want to say too much more about it, just because I could go on forever. Because it is my favorite film, I think, um, and I really want to hear what other people think about it. But I just really love this film. It's very special to me, and it um, changed my life. Really, I read a introduction to the screenplay written by. Sally Potter and in it she mentions that as she was writing the film what became clear was that it was a film about impermanence that is the thing that has stuck with me the most throughout uh, my enjoyment of the film and studying the film and yeah I'm interested to hear what people think about that and what people think about the film. Thanks Georgia for that introduction Um, you picked up on a lot of points that I wanted to bring up as well about the the sort of artifice of sort of social rituals and and um performance um it kind of feels like everyone in the film is performing except Orlando Orlando can see the artifice see beyond it and refuses to to conform or play along with that in any deep way it's interesting you brought up Derek German because I, I rewatched this film with my husband and they commented on how similar it was to Derek. It reminded them of Derek German films. And there is something about the costuming and the framing and and especially in the first sort of half, it feels like tableaus of, of societal rituals that are meant to be, meant to look a bit artificial and ridiculous. And we're supposed to be brought into that sort of viewpoint yeah, I um, I thought this was a, a really uh, interesting choice for a, a film, in, in, you know, in discussion about autism and neurodivergence because I'd seen it, but very many years ago, so it's sort of come out, you know, sort of slightly fallen out of my head. And um, so rewatching it this week was was nice. It was almost like watching it uh, afresh, and uh, certainly watching it from a sort of neurodivergent. Uh, autistic slash neuroqueer perspective, I found re- I found really interesting, and yeah, I think we can't help but see Orlando and Tilda Swinton's performance of Orlando 
in the in, almost in the light of autism, which is really it's a really interesting way to approach a film like this. To see uh, Orlando as a character who is cutting against the the so-called normals of society, and is always well at the heart of, but also simultaneously at the fringes of it constantly, and um, observing it in a, in a way in which perhaps autistic people sometimes do with neurotypical society, seeing it in a slightly out, outsider perspective. Partly brought on by the by um, the, the the two strange fantastical things that happen in this film, which is that the kind of the the longevity of Orlando herself, the sort of immortality of Orlando herself, passing through long periods of time without ever aging, and then similarly the the moment halfway through when um, when the when there's the gender change, when Orlando goes from being male to being female, and there was something it was interesting to sort of think about that from and connect that with autism as a as a, as a sort of uh, autistic as autism being a, a position on the sort of almost on the fringes or the outside of society looking in and observing on absurdities and as you say the artifice of of neurotypical society and how that's structured well particularly in in relation here in this film to um gender roles in particular and into the, the position of the man and the position of the woman and orlando does get involved with um you know talks to a lot of uh, people who have very clear opinions upon the position that women should have in society and the position that men should have in society and even things like the position that poets should have in society which is uh, still very amusing in many ways and yeah so it was interesting to see that and and also on top of that um I also found the kind of the process, I guess, of the breaking of the fourth wall to be also a kind of interesting connection to autism in a way that I haven't fully thought through completely yet. Um, but I wonder if this is something we can sort of think through together in, in our discussion. But frequently throughout the throughout the film, from the very early point in the film and all the way through the film, um, Orlando looks at the camera and breaks that fourth wall, looks at the viewer. Um, and uh, often it's a very sort of knowing glance or a kind of a sort of nudge, nudge, wink, wink kind of glance. It reminds me of like a, a Shakespearean character doing a soliloquy, a sort of suddenly breaking out and looking at the audience. Um, and it's a very powerful effect and it's it's even more powerful effect from, from Tilda Swinton's kind of elfin eyes that she has that are very sort of enigmatic. Um, but also it, it, what it put me in mind of was this discussion that is often that often comes up around eye contact with uh, autistic people. So eye, eye contact is something that is is a, a thing that is often discussed and brought up um, because you know it's almost one of the sort of famous markers of the of autism is that autistic people tend to avoid making eye contact or have a problem making eye contact, etc. I think it's one of those things that's slightly exaggerated and has become a, um, a yeah a kind of emblem almost of autism, and it's quite problematic in many ways because a lot of a lot of therapies, um, quote unquote therapies, uh, you know, sort of do things like forcing people to make eye contact, forcing children, autistic children to make eye contact when they're, when they're not very comfortable about that. But what's really interesting about Tilda Swinton about Orlando looking at the camera and making it's that it's kind of a, a process of making direct eye contact with the viewer, but in a way that is 
uh, eye contact that is away from almost the typical way of making eye contact. It's almost like a safer way of making eye contact. It's almost like, uh, yeah, as you say, George, you, you know, you've kind of got somebody there who is almost like a friend who is guiding guiding you, guiding your sort of um, sideways look at neurotypical society. And making that eye contact with the viewer is a way of, um, of fusing that connection together. I don't know. It just made me think. I don't know why it sort of just made me think about eye contact and about that, that the context of that, and that how actually, you know, the sort of the autism, the autistic problems with eye contact are not necessarily with eye contact itself, but it's just a kind of like a, a different approach, a different um, way of communicating and the difficulties that arise in the sort of having to make that eye contact in situations where you're not feeling necessarily comfortable. And I thought there was something interesting in the breaking of the fourth wall in this film that sort of can address that when we're looking at this film from an autistic point of view. I think that's a, that's a bit of a vague point, but I don't know if that maybe sparks some ideas in other people. But yeah, that was the, one of the main things I was thinking. Yeah, I'm, that certainly um, speaks to some of the, the thoughts I was having while I was watching the film. Um, I was I was experiencing the to camera as quite intimate in the way Georgia was describing it um, and, and thinking about that a lot, that we don't get a lot of language from Lilith Swinton's character, but we seem, we, we get enough to know exactly what she's thinking. And I was sort of just thinking about how that works cinematically. There's so much of cinema, neurotypical cinema operates as on a model of inference that we're always having to work out what it is the main character is thinking and feeling and it's all on that model of depth. And there's something about this film that 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 speaks to the surface very much in the way in which, you know, you were talking about Georgia and, and John James around the um the theatricality, the the um the pageantry, the way in which all of the style stylization of the film is the content that is the meaning of the film we, we we get it there and it reminded me a little bit of um a book by the film scholar Rosalind Galt called Pretty which is talking about um precisely this sort of the decorative as something that's that has been historically dismissed but actually what happens if we take this as the site of meaning and, and so the film was just was, was could be read I think if if we extrapolate a bit further in the way that you were doing David um, it, it could be read as, you know, a model of thinking about meaning not being deep and profound and, and, and how that sort of idea of character uh, is, is actually, you know, one that is is very much about a neurotypical apprehension of other people that we all exist deep inside in these emotional worlds. Um, and there's something about the lightness of this film that, that I think has that different perspective that is reading very accurately across the whole space of of history, the meaning of things, um, but in a in a very different model, a model of of the surface. Yeah, I, I totally agree with everything uh, everyone has said. I think Sally Potter said that the intention of the direct address was to create quote a golden thread um, between Tilda Swinton and the audience. And to me, I mean, that's exactly what we've been saying. It's a, it's a connection and an equalness between the spectator and the character. Um, 
I was looking at the film alongside um, uh, some of Laura Mulvey's work and uh, I think what's interesting about Orlando is instead of uh, encouraging kind of the voyeurism of looking in on a world that is private and constantly having to work out what the character is thinking, constantly working out the inner workings of a world that the audience does not know. Um, Orlando reveals everything that they're thinking. <laughs> There's a moment where um, they turn to the audience when they're watching Othello and just go, terrific play. It's just moments like that of just release and of laughter that sort of draw the, the character and the audience together and not in a, a narcissistic way, but in a in an intimate, friendly way, which is, I think, one of the reasons why the eye contact is uh, quite therapeutic as opposed to intimidating for neurodivergent people. I myself found it um, like like a release because I think with my issues with eye contact, there's a pressure of being perceived by another person. And in in the cinema, you're not being perceived by that person because this is you're separated by a screen you're separated by the camera um contact with Orlando I know myself that I am not um in the presence of Tilda Swinton I mean if I was in the presence of Tilda Swinton my reaction would be quite messy (laughs) um but I think it's the the idea of knowing yet not having to be known is something that is quite important and is quite resonant. Well, I've got a surprise for you, Georgia. Tilda Swinton's here with us today, and she's going to be joining in the recording. <laughs> Not really, but yeah. I, um, although it seems like the sort of thing she would do. Anyway, never mind. Um, yeah, no, I totally agree with that. I think that's really interesting. And it's interesting to think of just the cinema as a space um, for that can be quite a almost beneficial for autistic people in a way as a as a space that um where there can be this sort of intimacy not that not that i'm saying that that, you know autistic people struggle with intimacy or anything like that but that there is a kind of i don't know maybe the cinema in a a way offers a kind of uh in in this way offers a sort of safer environment almost for things like uh eye contact uh for you know feeling safe within that kind of scenario. I don't know, it's interesting to think through um, that, that one of the things that, that, you know, the cinema offers as a, as a, as a social connection, I suppose. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah, really interesting. Um, yeah, I can totally agree with that. So um, I've been a bit quiet in this group so far today, which isn't really like me. And uh, I've got to admit, when I first started watching Orlando, I was double checking all the emails to make sure it was the right one because I was so confused as to why we were suddenly watching, you know, this Elizabethan um, drama and this costume drama. And it seemed to be all about, you know, rituals that, uh, rituals around dating and, and I just, I didn't get the connection. And obviously I didn't know anything about the context. I had no, understanding of of the sort of larger project that it unfurls throughout the film but I did um, I mean it, it was witty and it was strange and and, it, and interesting but I, I remember sort of 
experiencing a lack of connection, which probably has to do with my sort of, you know, positioning in the world, um, having less direct sort of emphasis on queer and feminist themes in my own life. But I even struggled to sort of understand, I had to read carefully the emails that John James and Georgia sent about how they were looking at this through a lens of autism and a sort of critique of neurotypical rituals or or conventions. But um, yeah, I just, it, it all never really quite landed for me. I, it seemed to feel like, um, you know, here's an incredibly privileged and fortunate individual who just happens to be on the right side of Queen Elizabeth, granted these magical powers to live for eternity in an, an enormous mansion and just sort of stumbles their way through life without ever really getting injured beyond a sort of, you know, failed attempts at teenage romance. And it, uh, and I just, I couldn't, it all seemed like such a wasted opportunity to do some interesting things. And uh, it was all very sort of like just drifting through this sort of extraordinary experience without really, with a sort of cool detachment and like, oh, well, none of this really matters. And, and so that's what I was left with as I watched it. But I think, I think it just wasn't really a film that was designed for my interests. I'm not sure. But, uh, you know, looking at it afterwards and, and seeing how other people have been talking about it, I can see it sort of really resonates on levels that I wasn't really thinking about as I watched it. And I can understand why, you know, there's so, I mean, the, what really stood out to me is the sort of humiliation of the, of Orlando when they, when he, he at the time was like trying to um, appeal to a poet and, and, and get mentorship in exchange for money and was clearly getting exploited. And then that was flaunted towards him, how, how much of a terrible poet he was. The poet then sort of writing some verse explaining just how awful he was and how disconnected. And so, but even that, like, that didn't seem to, uh, and maybe it's a sort of, you know, extreme camp parody of elitism and exclusivity in the arts, which is like actually a still massive problem. Yeah, so at every point, there's a way of thinking about it and it becomes interesting. But on the surface, you know, when my primary experience of it was like, I don't really know where to put my feet here. I don't know what I'm meant to be thinking about. So anyway, my perspective. It's interesting that you um, mentioned the sort of um, meandering, I guess, narrative and, and, and Orlando's kind of attitude of just going with it, because that's something I really, really liked as a sort of a sort of like a counter narrative. Like there isn't some big hero's journey. It's kind of like reminds me of the Gleaners and I in a bit in the way that Orlando just sort of potters along, refusing to um, to conform, even though they, like you say, Orlando has every privilege that they could hope for and, uh, and could easily have a really rich, as in financially, life and, and you know, a huge career and stuff. And, and they, they don't really ever really connect with that. I think there's a line where Orlando says that they they no longer care for a career. Someone actually brings it up with them. So I was just reading it as another refusal to conform, which I kind of see like the the gender fluidity and and the refusing to age 
as well as um, David described it as sort of fantastical or, or magical, but um, it kind of, from Orlando's point of view, it's just um, commonplace. It just makes sense that they wouldn't age or be stuck in in a gender binary because that's kind of a bit reductive and 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 you know what what's the point? And that's kind of a bit it's a bit weirder than just going along and doing doing what you want. I think that's how I read it. I was just thinking as you were both speaking and John James and Alex about how um, how this film for me speaks to that context um, of, of of the late eighties and early nineties when when being queer, being gay was actually being legislated against, and I think this film. Um, comes very much as you were saying, John James is as a um, in relationship with Derek Jarman's work and Tilda Swinton had been in his film Caravaggio, which I was just looking up. I think it was nineteen eighty six, um, and and it, I think both of these films are are a sort of project about writing queerness into history, and Caravaggio does that in a very specific moment. You know, he, here is this painter. We have his paintings, but we don't have his life. Let's imagine what it was. It's, uh, there are reasons to believe that he had relationships with men, that all of his desire and was infused in the paintings was 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 towards men. And I, I think this Sally Potter does a similar thing, but in a very different way. And so we're imagining history from this other point of view. And I think the othering we're thinking about today in, includes autism, and that's that's so refreshing and it's been so absent from the way in which this film has been thought about so far has been very much picked up in terms of feminism and, and queerness. But I'm also interested in what you're saying, Alex, about about privilege. And I, I think it I think it's true. This film doesn't doesn't interrogate class. It's the one thing that it, it well actually it's it's the second thing it doesn't do. The other thing that occurred to me was um around Orientalism. I think there's a bit in the middle of the film where where uh, Orlando goes, and and I think is that the point where there's the transition um, in this Oriental space. And I was, you know, thinking about Edward Said's work about how sexuality and the Orient are always for 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 Westerners, you know, put together in this in this particular way. So I think there's there's that. Even though Potter is, you know, creating a parody of that in some ways. There's a parody of everything in this film. We we could read it as caricature. Nonetheless, it does. It is meaningful. It is meaningful that that transition, which is a a positive fluidity in the film, takes place there. So I was thinking about that, and I, and and that, that there is real cruelty in that moment. I think when when the poet you know reads aloud the the poem that Orlando has written. So yes, it's interesting to think about where this film um, has real insight and 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 can carry us uh, towards new understandings and where and where it might reproduce things that are a bit less less fresh. Um, yeah, I definitely um, I never really read into that uh, around the gender changing thing, but I find, I find it interesting because parody is quite a uh, a large element of the film and it's difficult to know when parody is caricature for me i think looking at it from just you know this film is a parody point of view the thing that i really enjoy is the the parody of sort of british tradition so for example 
period drama, costume drama, and also literature. So there's a sec- there's a section of the film which references the whole Gothic period of literature when Orlando comes out of the maze and then falls to the ground and says, nature, nature, take me, I am a bride, which is very Edgar Allan Poe, <laughs> Bronte sisters. And then she, Potter kind of uh, reimagines uh, the meeting of Mr. Rochester and Jane Eyre through um, Shalmadine and Orlando um, when Shalmadine falls off his horse and they meet. Um, but then from that point onwards, they, she starts to completely unpick the whole you know, story of Jane Eyre and everything that goes with it. One thing I read when I was researching the film, which I found really interesting, is in one of the very... Uh, one of the mid drafts the screenplay um when Shalmadine uh leaves Orlando um eventually because he's sort of like an American freedom fighter who um wants kind of liberty and is encouraging Orlando to not be tied down by you know earthly possessions and by people instead of kind of uh, accepting the fact that she's lost her ownership of the house she burns the house down as a kind of act of rage which again links back to the Mad Woman in the Attic from Jane Eyre. But I think it's very interesting that Potter decided not to do that um, because she continues with this um, subversion of a very British tradition rather than falling back into it as something that is or something that is already evidenced in history and in tradition, which is the trope of the ageing hysterical woman. Um, and instead she pursues a storyline of acceptance and of, as I've said before, of impermanence, of the fact that life is made up of sort of episodes or eras of time that don't necessarily last. So the film is very much updated from a, from a first-wave feminist kind of approach. And through that, it kind of further subverts those sort of very entrenched traditions which, I mean, as an autistic person, I find it very hard to understand why these traditions exist and why these rituals of society are there. And I find it quite thrilling to see it being picked apart in a way. Um, so the in Virginia Woolf's novel, it sort of ends with Orlando winning a lawsuit over the house and then celebrating and being married to Shelmadine and living in the house. But in Potter's film, it's a celebration of a more modern kind of feminism that rejects the institution of the family and of, you know, ownership of property, which I find, I mean, as a woman and as someone who is not neurotypical, I find really um, therapeutic to watch. There was something I, I, I wanted to say in relation to the scene that Georgia was just mentioning. This is one of the, my favourite moments in the film, that moment uh, um, when Orlando emerges from the, the maze and um, first meets Shelmadine. The reason why I enjoyed that um, moment, I think, does relate, I think, a little bit to some of the things we've been talking about in terms of parody, but also in terms of what I, what I was sort of seeing is the kind of sincerity of, parody in some ways the, 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 or the sincerity of frivolity I guess 
so what we have there is just before that that just before she enters the maze and is running around um uh, and before she before she meets Tomatine the sort of biggest scene just before that has been between her and Archduke Harry and Archduke Harry uh, is this kind of older gentleman who um uh, offers his hand in marriage to to Orlando and I've actually pulled up the uh, dialogue here because I thought it was quite amusing so Archduke Harry says I'm offering you my hand Orlando says oh Archduke that's very kind of you yes I cannot accept and Archduke says but but I am England and you are mine and Orlando says I see on what grounds and Archduke says that I adore you and, and Orlando says and this means that I belong to you and Tilda Swinton's performance here is just like completely, it's almost sort of naive and innocent. And she's just saying, oh, no, no, I'm not going to marry you. I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm not going to accept that. And then sort of we get this this scene of her running through the maze and then she meets uh, Shelmerdine. And when she meets uh, Shelmerdine, um, you know, they're both on the flat on the ground. And Shelmerdine says, you're hurt, ma'am. And Orlando says, I'm dead, sir. And Shelmerdine says, dead. That's serious. Can I help? And Orlando says, will you marry me? And Shamuddin says, ma'am, I would gladly, but I fear my, my ankle is twisted. So there's something really ridiculous and comic and over the top happening there because you get this really long drawn out scene with Archduke Harry and this all of this over the top sort of proposal that he's making to Orlando. And then in the next scene, pretty much, you get this really quick and daft and funny and almost sort of like Samuel Beckett-esque um, moment of uh of, of orlando asking shamadi to, to marry her um and there was something gloriously alternative about that and really uh, uh fun and frivolous but there was, there was also a sincerity to it and a, and a giddiness that i really liked and um and found it i sort of saw read in that a kind of neuroqueer approach to um to kind of uh, relationships and to uh uh, connection um, and there was something this is certainly quite fantastical moment where she meets Shelmadine and as you say in Georgia there was that, that, that kind of parody of, of Jane Eyre but there was something wonderfully um, resistant again about it there's something uh, something kind of yeah that it sort of resists this sort of normal quote unquote normal process of um, of love and, and, and getting married and of course the, the reason really one of the reasons that Archduke Harry is offering his hand in marriage is because he he sees that Orlando is just about to lose her estate and he thinks that this is a way in which she can um, keep the, the house so it's not entirely to do with love it's some, you know it's to do with the aristocracy it's to do with the process of, uh, of keeping and managing land and so on whereas her connection with Shelmerdine is just that kind of instant uh, instant connection. So um, just going back to, I mean, there's two things I want to talk about here, which is maybe I want to, I'm just going to raise the idea of parody in a second, but before, we, before I get to it, um, Dave, you were, you were talking about the sort of proposal in the courtyard um, where, what was his name, Archduke Harry, um, uh, was... Is sort of trying to swoop in to save the day, save the um, sort of family fortune, and you know it's pragmatic, but it's also um, sort of an imposition, and, and the language of it is very much you know demanding. And I thought it's you know really important to mention this is a is a perfect replication 
or the role, role reversal of what happens in the first act where Orlando chats up this Russian czarist and uh, proposes and then just can't get his head around the idea that she's got her own things to get on with and isn't interested. Um, and so it sort of, you know, really cl- clearly sort of functions as a, a, a mechanism for reciprocity. You know, we, we had the one thing that Simone de Beauvoir identifies as, as as that would be helpful for the feminist cause, which is a reciprocity. If I was in your shoes, you'd be able to see sort of thing. She writes about that in The Second Sex. So it's very easy to for, for sort of travellers to go abroad and find themselves as foreigners for the first time. And that gives them a greater understanding and, and consciousness raising. But but that's not easily done with gender. But here we have a film that actually does that and sort of exercises these um sort of uh, feminist thought exercises um so i thought i mean that to me just i felt like i had to mention that in relation to those proposals and their and their sort of uh, functioning um but going back to this idea of parody that we talked about you know if this film is a parody um i mean i, I guess i'm not very well versed in sort of costume dramas and and uh, and literature and, and the way that like jane Eyre, all these things that are being referenced but, um, you know, in a way, I was when you were talking about parody, I was thinking, well, what way are not all films just parodies, unless they're like totally avant-garde and really doing strange and unfamiliar things? You know, we're, we're constantly dealing with art forms that repurpose sort of tropes and codes that have been well rehearsed. And so how does this function as a sort of allegory for the neurodivergent sort of position within a neurotypical discourse you know um is is the idea of um autism or neurodivergence the sort of uh incompatibility with those tropes and and the inability or it or our discomfort of having to parody uh sort of forms and codes that that don't aren't really designed for your needs and there's i was just sort of it led me down that path to thinking well um, you know, if this is a sort of neurotypical sort of parody, does it just provide, is, is its function really to provide really distinct sort of reflexive breakdown of those codes? And, and that's what its value is. Um, so I, th- I think that's what you were saying, George and John James. So yeah, I'm just thinking aloud here, but yeah. I think what helps me think through this a little bit um is this concept of the neuroqueer, which I've, I've mentioned a couple of a couple of times already, but I, I thought I'd just dwell on it a little bit. Um, so I, I, I find this idea of the neuroqueer to be really, really interesting and useful in terms of talking about uh, autism, and especially actually in terms of talking about autism in relation to the arts. Um, uh, the, the concept of the neuroqueer, in a, in a way, sort of redirects some of the, 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 the conversation of, of autism away from the sciences and towards the arts a bit more, I think. Um, so I just give sort of a little brief overview of what the neuroqueer is and what it means, because I think it's probably relevant here. So neuroque- the neuroqueer as a concept has been, um, uh, is fairly new and was sort of coined uh, and brought together really or sort of worked out by uh, a group of um, autistic uh, thinkers, writers, activists, scholars, uh, bloggers in particular, actually, they were, they were bloggers at first, um, uh, and, and was sort of elaborated on and expanded in the book Authoring Autism by um, 
by Remy Yergo. And uh, and, it, and Yergo was one of the people who sort of helped to coin the neuroqueer alongside Nick Walker, Ibi Grace, and Athena Lynn Michaels-Dillon. I'm reading from her book here. And uh, what, what the neuroqueer sort of suggested, and sort of like one of the things that Yergo says in her book is that um, yeah, she's very uh, keen on saying that, that they haven't just sort of grabbed the word neuro and the word queer and stuck them together, that there is actually a kind of uh, an intimate relationship between neurodivergence and queerness, that there is a, a kind of shared history and a shared uh, shared interests um, and a sort of shared direction. One of the things that Yergo talks about in, aut- in authoring autism is that um, there have been a lot of uh, kind of interventionist behavioral therapies that have been um, that that are still going on and and and, and have been a, a major part of autistic history and life, which is where certain people intervene uh, with autistic children usually and try and redirect autistic behaviours towards some sort of normal. And Yergo makes the point that this is connected to and has a shared history with things like gay conversion therapies, uh, where queerness is seen as something that is that is bent and wrong and, and incorrect and needs to be straightened out through therapy. And so there's this kind of really intimate connection between these two things. And what the neuroqueer suggests is that it's a kind of a celebration and, a, and I guess a sort of performance, I suppose, of of, of, of natural autistic behaviours, natural neurodivergent behaviours, things like stimming and and, um, and avoiding eye contact and uh, sensory intensity. These things not seen as uh, as medical deficits, but as, as as kind of natural processes within the autistic person and the autistic body and mind. And neuroqueerness is kind of expressed the expression of that and the celebration of that and the uh, artistic expression of that in some ways, and the, the and the kind of defiant speaking back to power that, that that queerness can can bring. And I think then in relation to something like to a text like Orlando, uh, like you're saying, Alex, that um, when you've got elements like parody, pastiche. Um, these kind of comedic forms that reflect upon the absurdities of normality, that to me connects really strongly with the neuroqueer because it feels like that's one of the projects of the neuroqueer is to hold up these mirrors and hold up these signs to say a lot of what we've decided is normal in neurotypical society is not and for a lot of people is difficult and a lot of people is a struggle. And actually if we can look at things askance and a little bit sideways like happens here like that happens in Orlando then we can kind of illuminate these absurdities and also indicate that there are many people in this world who do not follow that that the, the track of normal I suppose of what is what is considered to be normal and so I think the neuroqueer offers a a, a way of seeing texts like Orlando in a much the same way that queer studies has allowed us to, you know, analyze Orlando. But I think the neuroqueer then adds in this additional element of saying, you know, people are different and um, and there are ways of seeing the absurdities. And one of the one of the mechanisms of that, I think, can be can be parody. And I think that's where it can be um, used in a really useful and interesting way. Um, I'm, I'm really glad that you brought up Neuroqueer because I had it in my notes here to to talk about um, 
So I, I looked at the um, the blog Neurocosmopolitanism, which um, sort of outlines different possible definitions of neuroqueerness, but also it, it, it kind of says that you know any any attempt to to comprehensively define the term sort of goes against what the term is trying to achieve. And it really interests me in how my neurodivergence throughout my life has um, perhaps intersected with the way that I've performed gender or sexuality. And I think, yeah, you can definitely see echoes of that in, in this film, whether it was intended or not, that... Orlando, um, because of their sort of otherness or their sort of existence on the fringes of society, they they question, or not even question, they just they don't perform gender and sexuality in the in the way that is expected in any time period. So I, I think it's a really interesting area to discuss. However, I am quite mindful that um a lot of clinicians would use this possible link to deny people access to to healthcare trans and non-binary people which is really upsetting so yeah i think it's a really interesting topic to discuss we just have to be careful about how we talk about it yeah i i I haven't really come across um neuroqueer quite a lot um i mean i've been I've been reading a lot on, I mean, queer theory and queer new wave for quite a few months now. Um, And what stood out to me is that there's a tendency within um, like queer cinema to create like a a fixed authentic vision of what queerness is. Um, There's a Be Ruby Rich quote, I think, where she's, she's attempts to define exactly what queer film is but it um, excludes the fact that queerness is a whole spectrum of representation and not just about parody and subversion and pastiche. Um, And obviously, as we've talked about, Orlando does not represent, you know, every single aspect of representation. It doesn't, it's quite questionable in its representation of race and of class, as we've mentioned. But I think as, as a queer film that we can look at from a neurodivergent perspective, I think, especially taking into account what we've said, is very interesting in terms of the performativity of of gender, um, which is quite a um, which is quite a common topic within queer fields. Um, but I think the way in which it's done in Orlando isn't. Is obviously is in an overperformative way, but not, um, in not done in in a, like a celebration of this subversion. Um, actually, the thing that is celebrated is Orlando's lack of gender, like towards the end of the film when they become more androgynous, which is also kind of just a testament to the time. Um, but I think. I mean, Potter has mentioned that she really didn't want to do the whole thing where putting a be- with putting a beard on Orlando when they're a man because she wanted people to be aware that this was a, a female-gendered actor playing a man. 
she wanted that gender ambiguity to be clear from the very start of the film. So kind of dressing her up in uh, a lot of masculine gendered clothing would be counterproductive. Um, because right from the start of the film, what is highlighted is um, the fact that gender is essentially just dressing up and about performance. Uh, but like like we've said, um, it's difficult to discuss that because... Um, obviously, the film does not touch on, you know, trans issues, uh, which, to be honest, are not really discussed in this point of time. And I've read a lot of I've been doing another essay on another uh, queer film and uh, uh, specifically about trans people. And there's a lot of text that just completely ignore that uh, that issue and just kind of sweep it away as just another element of gender performativity so I think yeah it is very important that we are mindful that um, gender is not always performance and that it is sometimes necessity. Just picking up on a, a few of those those threads I'm, I'm trying to think through how the film operates in terms of parody and thinking about the neuroqueer uh, and I was thinking about the film's lightness, which which we've talked about a lot, and, and I think it has a, a wonderful energy in that sort of glide across history. But I think it's also important to note that it's very precise. It's very precise in its targets. You know, it, it distills a lot of the ludicrousness of history in a way that we get it immediately in these in these vignettes. So the, the law of inheritance, for example. The, that we find and, and we've already mentioned that you know the sort of unwritten law of desire you know if 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 a man desires a woman well that that means that has to take place so I think that the it, it, it's very well targeted it's very distilled in what it's trying to um, expose um, and I think that it's important to to sort of bear in mind when we talk about this as though as though parody is a sort of you know a lightning of of what is serious, that the serious still exists. And I think that, that when we're thinking about the neuroqueer, we're thinking about how those things go together, you know, those and conversion therapy, that is still with us. It was it was part of what happened with the resignation of Arlene Foster in, in Ireland uh, a week or two ago. Um, you know, her ab- abstention on a vote, which would, would ban conversion therapy for gay people. Um, I mean, the, you know, these are horrible narratives of, of oppression that are part of our culture now. And so I think that, that the lightness that Potter's film has in opposition to that is, is very political and very significant. And it's, you know, there are, there are many, many moments in history where these um, fights against power have operated um, and been very effective, and and they're important to to note as well. But this film, I think, offers us something different. It offers us um, a sort of a, a more like a, 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 the outsider's point of view as the insider. You know, this glide across history that just says, "Look, you know, this is how ridiculous these conventions are, but also they're very powerful." And here's a way of of living otherwise. And and I think for me. Um, as a queer person, it it feels very very empowering and 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 lightening. You know that that, that lightness is really important to have in in a culture in which you don't uh, get to feel that you're sort of at the centre of of a system of values, but always on the edge. So I was thinking about um, partly what Georgia said about um, 
performing gender and surviving and how towards the end of the film Orlando uses uses their experiences to find a way to sort of hack the system um and they they survive with their child sort of almost in a different reality like Orlando looks up to the sky and they see this sort of angelic creature that no one else can see so it feels like Orlando has used these societal norms that they've been sort of um parodying and 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 sort of being outside of for the whole film to then find a place for them to exist safely if that makes sense and i was thinking about what alex said about the lack of well a few of us have discussed it the lack of the lack of class analysis and I've been seeing some discussions online about how people who aren't working class and make art often try to feign a sort of authenticity that comes from being working class. I don't know if I completely agree that people who aren't working class can't be authentic, but it does kind of feel like in this film, Orlando is trying to be something else the whole way through like the poetry doesn't quite work because they're completely out out of touch with society and it isn't until they sort of embrace who they truly are that they find some authenticity Um, i'm gonna keep quoting sally potter's introduction to the screenplay because i just think that the way she she talks about the film is just so brilliant so i recommend reading that if anyone's interested but there's a something she says i have a lot of quotes of here from it there's something she says about the ending of the film where she describes it as an ecstatic communion with the present. I think I, for me that I, I, that is quite a perfect description just because it's sort of a middle place. And throughout the film, like you've said, Orlando is constantly searching and they set out their goal quite clearly at the start of the film. They say that they want a companion. Um, hence the, you know, slew of heartbreak, the two, um, instances of heartbreak that they experience in the film um, and in those moments um, there's a lot of paralleling throughout the film and both times when first when um, Sasha leaves them and then when Shalmadine leaves them um, there's like this rainfall really heavy rainfall that just falls everywhere and drowns out the sound and then the screen goes black and then it cuts back to Orlando and the rain is stopped and it just lingers on them for a few moments. That to me is what indicates the impermanence element of the film, that things don't necessarily last forever and these episodes of struggle or loss are not permanent. And then by the end of the film, Orlando kind of um, comes into this celebration of presentness and of themselves as well, because the one thing that remains the same in the film is Orlando's identity and Orlando's experiences. Because, I mean, the last scene of the film takes place in the same location as the first scene of the film where they're sat against the tree. Um, except this time they have a daughter and uh, their daughter holds a, a digital camera up to them, sort of seeing them through a, a more contemporary lens. Because the film is very, the book is very cinematic and the film sort of, uh, takes advantage of that but I guess um, I think the camera is a very interesting metaphor because 
it sort of shows our our way of viewing or um, a younger, more contemporary way of viewing identity uh, that isn't dated or entrenched in tradition and um, sort of bigoted laws and ideologies. But yeah. <laughs> so on the, on, on the back of your point, Georgia, I'd just like to ask everyone what they think about this film that travels across time, is about time, with you just mentioning what's dated, what isn't dated. Um, what does everyone think about this 30 years on from the moment of its making? Does Has it travelled well in itself? I mean, aside from the things that we were noting about, um, you know, perhaps some problems with with uh, Orientalism and, and lack of comment upon class, potentially. Um, I did still find this a really refreshing film to watch. I did still find it to be quite uh, energetic and modern, and um, I felt as if it had something relevant to say. I feel like it still has relevance. Um, you know, sort of knowing that this was this came out in 1992 and was presumably, uh, you know, filmed in the, the late 80s, early 90s, um, it's quite remark. It's quite a remarkable piece of cinema, and 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 uh, and I feel like it has stood the test of time in a really interesting way. And uh, yeah, it felt fresh. It felt modern. I think what I really liked about it. I think when I was sitting there watching it. I was thinking, this could have been a. And, and, and <laughs> if it was made today, it may well be a kind of two and a half hour epic. Uh, thing that spans all of this time and is really slow and long-winded and it really draws out every single character and everyone's got lots and lots of dialogue and so on what i really liked about it it is it's 90 minutes it's really sippy it's really it really cracks through it and it takes um a, a, a you know a fast and loose approach to its source text which i must admit i haven't read so i haven't read virginia wolf's original novel but from what i've read about the film i, I know that it that it, and from what george what you were saying george i know that it um it's not a completely accurate uh, adaptation. And I really like that about it. I think that that makes it, um, keeps it kind of fresh and interesting and modern. And I, I feel like it does still have a relevancy. And although I can't really speak to the, to, to trans issues, particularly with, with much authority at all, you know, that, that was one of the things that, that was kind of in my mind as I was watching. That, that this is a, it is, it is a film about somebody who, albeit magically, transitions from being male to being female. And there's that really sort of um, poignant moment at that point of transition, even though it is a little bit fairy tale and it is a bit couched in the fact that it's sort of, it happens in um, she in the Middle East at the time and, and it's a little, there's something a little bit Arabian Nights about it. But she has that line, doesn't she, when she's, she's sort of looking at herself in the mirror as a, uh, and now is a woman and says um i can't remember the quote exactly but says you know it's she says i'm the same person but i'm just now a woman and i just thought that that was interesting i don't know how that relates necessarily to to the current um debates around trans issues um which i think is a really bad way of putting it anyway but um yeah whether that still is still a, a powerful statement to make whether that resonate resonates or whether the um or whether that's now, um, whether there's a complexity to that now, or if that's really, if that moment is still really important, I feel, in, within the kind of trans discourse, I suppose. Um, I mean, 
the, the title of my essay was literally the continuing timelessness of Orlando. So the focus was about, is it still quite kind of relevant? I mean, I was writing about it from the point of view of just feminism and how it relates to the fourth wave specifically. Um, and I agree that I think there's a lot of uh, discrepancies and there's a lot of things that are not, um, are either left out or not uh, interrogated that are things of importance, especially in the age that we're in now. So, like, yes, race, class, uh, transgender issues. One of the things that I really picked up on is, uh, and, and it's orchestrated through the the direct address, which we've already mentioned, is this idea of connection and of um, remote connection. Because a lot of feminist mobilizations, or just, you know, mobilizations between queer people and neurodivergent people, um, happen now over over the internet, over social media. And one thing Orlando does is connects the audience member to um, an individual who was experiencing a lot of things over such a long amount of time. And in that moment of direct eye contact, you get this sort of solidarity and this feeling of empathy, which I think watching the film from this, uh, from the 21st century and from 2021, um, does feel quite relevant because we are now living in a society that relies on um, these remote connections with people. Um, so yeah, I thought I thought that was quite interesting. But again, I don't think I think it's timeless in its appeal to like the external consciousness of uh, people who identify as female or people who uh, don't identify with a gender. But there's a lot. To build from it, that I think if if someone decided to remake it now, that it would be quite different. Oh, and a, another thing I wanted to mention when we were talking about uh, transgender issues, I mean this isn't <laughs> this isn't a lovely subject to touch up on, but I was I was reminded of something J.K. Rowling said in that essay she wrote about defending her herself when she spoke out against. Um, trans people essentially and a point that she made was that autistic people are more likely to be transgender or that more autistic people are identifying as trans in these big numbers and that this was an issue of concern which is very problematic it's very offensive um, to suggest that kind of autistic people are so oblivious of their own identity that they're so swayed into thinking that they are a different gender or influenced uh, into being trans. But I think what stands out for me is, is I think autistic people do have, and this is me speaking as an autistic person myself, have more, a more, more of an awareness of who they are and their identity because things aren't so clouded by, you know, these, these heavily enforced structures, which are unavoidable. But um, I think this whole statistic of, you know, autistic people, more autistic people being trans or transitioning isn't to do with some kind of illness or influence, which is just a totally ridiculous claim, but to do with, you know, awareness of oneself. I don't know if this is, this is just me speculating and it could be totally wrong. Um, But this is, you know, 
I, I'm someone who's always struggled with my own gender identity and having existed in queer spaces my whole life and having to navigate that myself. Um, so I thought that was just something to mention if we're when we're talking about um, gender and autism specifically. Yeah, that is, that is one of the things that uh, Yoko picks up on uh, quite frequently throughout authoring autism is that, yeah, that there's there maybe some there's some kind of connection actually between um, the fact that autistic people just by necessity have to sort of, on the one hand, sort of self-interrogate and and be, become intensely aware of who they are, just because neurotypical this society does not allow necessarily allow autistic people to fit uh, cleanly within those societal spaces and so that for therefore results in a little bit more of a uh, what is it people being quite introspective about who they are and also on the on the flip side of that as well is that um this process of if, because autistic people tend to be on the outside of neurotypical society a little bit that there is this kind of also this interrogation of how society works and the rules of society and then therefore autistic people can see the absurdities of that of those rules a little bit more and then that then also connects with queerness because um the the certain absurdities are absurdities around uh, gender binary or gender distinctions or the role of men and women or um, things you know institutions like marriage and so on um, because all these people have that kind of positioning of looking in on that sort of thing can see where the the sort of abs, the absurd lines and the absurd cracks are in that in those formations and therefore find a kind of um, a connection with the queerer side of things, the queerness, um, and, and 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 you know, uh, Yego says that there, you know, slightly anecdotally, there just seem to be quite a high incidence of of uh, autistic people who are also queer in some way, or who are also questioning these kinds of gender binaries in ways that neurotypical society hasn't quite done as much of, or has been a bit slower to, to do, or isn't kind of naturally inclined towards doing, not naturally inclined towards doing, but is more like less societally inclined towards doing perhaps, potentially. Um, so it does feel like that, that that connection is there, and that's possibly one of the reasons why Orlando as a film um tends to resonate i don't know um i i mean i, I can't i can't speak to it with much authority because i'm not a queer person necessarily i'm i'm heteronormative i guess and and i'm not autistic and i'm not trans and all, all of these things so i'm saying this from my very privileged uh, white males uh, cis male perspective but that feels like one of the yeah that feels like one of the approaches that autism has and one of the connections that autism has with queerness generally it's fascinating, really. It's really interesting um, and and quite profound in many ways as well. Okay, uh, I think we'll um, we'll bring that to a close then. Um, so yeah, thank you for for your discussions on this film on Orlando, uh, a nineteen ninety two film directed by Sally Potter. Um, uh, so yeah, this has been a really great discussion. It's really interesting to talk uh, particularly about uh, you know a film with so much. Uh, queer content uh, which is not something we've necessarily uh, looked at or addressed before so yeah great so thank you um thank you to uh, georgia bradburn john james laidlow janet harbord and alex widdleson for your thoughts on this film and join us again for another episode soon 
You have been listening to the Autism Through Cinema podcast, hosted by Georgia Bradburn, John James Laidlow, Alex Whittleson, Janet Harbord, and David Hartley. Big thanks to Leverett Jakes for editing this episode. Our theme song is Waterfall by Meter under a Creative Commons attribution from Null Teal Records. The Autism Through Cinema podcast is brought to you by the Autism Through Cinema project, based at Queen Mary, University of London, and funded by the Wellcome Trust. For more on the project, please visit autism-through-cinema.org.uk and follow us on Twitter at Autism Cinema. If you have any feedback, comments, questions or musings, please send them to us at cinemaautism at gmail.com. We'll be back again in two weeks' time with another slice of neurodivergent cinematics. Bye for now.